the power of inertia. Inertia is doing the tried and true things that worked well in the past again today and holding on to those things and doing them well. It is the power that comes from the way things have been because the way things have been have worked for us. Well, to get ready for a relevant and a meaningful intern program, I've been talking with field ed administrators at local schools and professors and deans, and I've been explaining what we've been doing. What we've been doing is finding that we've been going up against inertia. In many ways, that's what we've been doing. And I've been asking them for their help. I've been asking them to help us find students that uh, are kind of a fit for us. And more to the point, I've been asking them to steer us away from, or steer away from us, students that would get upset with the tinkering with the tradition process that we've been doing because there's a lot of really good people who are deeply rooted in traditional forms of the Christian faith, but we're looking more for the ones who are restless and the ones that are on the verge of giving up their faith, the ones who have recognized the dissonance between Christianity told in this worldview and Christianity being told in this one. And when we find them, I'm going to ask for your help. I'm going to ask you to love them. I'm going to ask you to share your life and your spiritual experience with them. I'm going to ask you to participate in their projects in the same way that you would going to your children's piano recital or school plays and to cheer for them and support them and believe in them. I think we can help get them ready for the life before them by taking this supportive role in their lives. Now when we do that, Jack pointed out to me this week, there's a really good chance that some of them are going to face some whiplash as they come from a traditional way of being Christian into something that we've been working on for a long time now. So, these remarks about the King James Version of the Bible are our tradition's experience in grappling with one issue that can act as kind of a cautionary tale for us, a tale we can tell our interns along with many others to help them navigate the kind of change that this moment in history is demanding of us. So here it is. A lot of people won't know this because it's not nearly as prevalent as it was 50 years ago. But in some circles, the King James Version of the Bible, the Bible with the these and the thous, was considered the only way that you could get access to God's truth, to God's word. And there was some epically venomous fights among people in churches that divided folks one from another, deciding who was going to be loyal to this version of the Bible and who was not going to be loyal to this version of the Bible. So a good place to start looking at this cautionary tale for us is a quick look at some of the dirty laundry in our tradition. Here it is. History tends to get rewritten after certain events have transpired. And when there is a struggle between two ways of being or between two nations or two anythings, the ones who win the victors tend to rewrite the story so that they are the good guys. 
It doesn't really matter what horrible things they had to do to get the victory. Once they get the victory, they're in charge of the presses that then release the reports that say this is what happened. So after, time, after a while, this rewritten version of history uh, is told to subsequent generations without any of the context of having lived through it, and so people begin to believe the story that they are told. So that's just how it is. <clears throat> that happens. That's the caution in this cautionary tale. There are truths worth fighting for. There are values worth dying for. But there are a whole lot of truths that are fought for and a whole lot of values that are died for that were not worth the sacrifice. When we tell the story that was told by the victors, that retold version of history often casts badness as goodness. It often casts vice as virtue. And if we end up fighting for that story, we can unintentionally end up fighting for a truth that is in fact not true. We can end up fighting for a virtue that is in fact a vice. So the dirty laundry. The King James Bible started its life as a tool of political oppression. In the decades after Martin Luther's 95 Theses caught the imagination of Christians, and after that shift began to a new way of being Christian in a new worldview that's now become the old worldview, and after this international rebellion began to take shape against the then traditional church that has now become the now traditional church, there was a group, a group of people called the Puritans. And those Puritans were an offshoot, a splinter group of the rebellion. The rebellion in total now is called the Reformation. And by just a few decades after uh, the, the 95 Theses had been circulated, um, in England there was already a local version of the rebellion, an official version of rebellion, an official rebellious church. It was the Church of England. And this official rebellion thought the Puritan rebellion was rebelling the wrong way. <laughs> there was a better way to rebel, and so they began to try to bring the Puritans in line and say, you've got to rebel the way we are rebelling in order to be part of a proper rebellion. And the way that we're doing it is we keep enough of the traditions from the previous iteration of the church so that we can feel the authority of that officialness that we carry with us. So we got to keep enough of the traditions to feel official, but we got to let enough of the traditions go so that we can let Henry divorce his wife. And so that was kind of the proper version of the rebellion, and they said the Puritans were doing it wrong. The Puritans weren't buying it. The Puritans thought that the British Empire was the new Roman Empire. They thought that the official rebellion was way, way too cozy with the British Empire, as cozy as the early Christian church had become with the Roman Empire, that there was way too much commingling of spirituality and imperialism, way too much commingling of church and empire. So they were trying to undo all of the rituals and all of the practices of both the official church and of the official rebellion version of church. So they were doing a lot of deconstruction. They were doing a lot of rethinking. They were reimagining how to do religious practices, which, by the way, I hope sounds kind of familiar to you. 
because when we are in the throes of this kind of reformation, that's what we do. We rethink practices and we rethink narratives. Sounds familiar because we're doing the same. Anyway, the Puritans looked to the Bible to help with their deconstruction, and along the way they discovered that the Bible that was being used by the empire had several glaring mistranslations, which for them was all the justification they needed so that they could break from the group and break from the tradition. They've got the wrong Bible, we're going to get the right Bible, and therefore we can go in our unofficial rebellion and do so with a clear conscience. And so they became nonconformists, and they became spiritually unyielding and rebellious. And King James, he didn't like it, not one little bit, not in his kingdom, because he believed that the church and the state were one in the same with him in charge. He thought that all power came from God, and that power landed on him and extended through him to both the state and to the church. So in order to help him make sure that God's plans were fulfilled on the earth, he gathered together 47 scholars so that they could come up with a translation of the Bible that would keep the Puritans in their place. Now, his primary objective was to undercut their justification for nonconformity. His primary objective was to get what he wanted. He wanted everyone to conform, and the kind of conformity he wanted was the yield to the king kind of conformity, so he needed a version of the Bible that would get it for him. He wanted a Bible that would validate the status quo, and it would say that he was the guy at the top of the heap. So he gathered his scholars, and he gave them his instructions. Two primary instructions. First, make sure that your translation of the Bible keeps the Episcopal structure of the church. In other words, make sure that your translation of the Bible keeps the bishop as the guy in charge of everything. Because interestingly, the bishop reported to the king. (laughs) So that worked out nicely for him. And he said, make sure that your translation of the Bible confirms the right of ordination, which, in other words, says all priests... In every town, in every city, in every village, all priests become priests by the laying on of hands of the bishop. In other words, make sure that not only does the bishop stay at the top, but everybody else stays under the authority of the bishop because, conveniently, the king is right there above the bishop. But other than that, he said, knock yourselves out. Other than that... Do the best translation you can do. And so the translation was made, and the bishops did stay on top, and the whole system did continue reporting to the king. But then all the players in that historical drama died, as they do. And all the parents who had inherited this version of the Bible used it to teach their children all the Bible stories. And all the schools used it to train their ministers, as they do. And pretty soon, after enough time had gone by, James' Machiavellian agenda was completely forgotten. Nobody remembered that's how we got this Bible. And then a few more generations passed, and then any Christian who suggested any other version of the Bible than this version of the Bible, whoa, them's fighting words. Pretty soon we became entrenched in the idea that this is the way that we access divine truth. And whole churches split over any suggestion to the contrary. That's the power of tradition. That's the power of inertia. 
That's what happens in generations that are in the throes of rethinking some of the core fundamental truths that have lost their way. When we are rethinking our tradition, this is the kind of inertia into which we run. Now, that's not even close to the point that I want to make in today's lesson. (laughs) That really is just free premium material right there. (laughs) But it seemed important enough to take these moments because we are going to be bringing interns in to our church in the next few years. And many of them are going to come to us having decided they want to spend lives of ministry and you, you decide that you're going to spend your life in ministry by going to church. And when you go to church, you are taught things. Now, there are things that they'll want to protect, things that they will want to believe. Probably not the version of the Bible debate because not many people fight that fight anymore. But there will be some venerated tradition that will be important to them. And we'll be over here tinkering with it, and it's going to be a whiplash experience for them. So I want to invite us, with gentle patience, to be helpful. First, we have to kind of get our own minds around, where do we get the permission to be doing this thing that we're doing? Where are we getting the permission that we feel to be rethinking the way that we are Christian in this new worldview? Where does that come from? Well, it turns out that questioning and challenging the tradition is also a venerated part of the tradition. It turns out that challenging our tradition is built right into the tradition. There was a book came out recently. I love the title. The title is called The Fidelity of Betrayal. It says if you are going to be faithful to the tradition, you are going to constantly be required to come back and question the tradition. And sometimes... In some generations, like ours, you're going to be required to betray the tradition. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. That's what Abelard did. That's what Huss did. That's what Luther did. That's what the Reformers did, is in order to move into a healthy tradition, we can't but calcify. We can't but lose our way. And from time to time, we are all called upon to check those who have gone before us and find if we have lost our way and bring about the protest and bring about the reform and bring about the rethinking. That also is part of our tradition. Challenging the tradition is a venerated part of the tradition. And for our young people who are going to spend their lifetimes in this moment in history creating spiritual communities, the courage and the permission to break from tradition can be made a lot easier by a community that affirms the rethinking process and admits out loud that as precious as our tradition is, as many things as we got so powerfully right, we also got some things wrong. And when we did, it is not disloyal to go back and to fix them. Often, by understanding the history of how we got this way, that's where we get the permission to go back and rethink how we are. And sometimes the best gift that we can give to our young people is the open acknowledgement of our own dirty laundry. Instead of keeping it secret, we can say, yeah, we lost our way. Because you know what? It's our way to lose our way. But it's also our way to find our way once we've lost it. So 50 years ago, lots of Christians were fighting over 
whether these other Christians should or shouldn't be using the King James Version of the Bible. And I bet when they were fighting that fight, meanly, viciously, hurtfully, I bet none of them knew they were fighting to protect a corrupt king. I bet none of them knew that they were fighting to protect an agenda that they didn't even longer ascribe to. It didn't even any longer ascribe to. Because the agenda was to keep church and state together. Most of the people who were fighting that fight 50 years ago would never have fought for putting together church and state. That's what they were fighting for. They were fighting for that version of the Bible that could do that. That was a protection that they wouldn't have even wanted to defend. And yet here we were fighting that fight. It's important in moments like the one we are living through to know our history, to know how we got here, to know why we do the things that we do, because there's considerably more dirty laundry in our heritage than we would like to admit. That's not a problem. That's not a problem at all. Christianity is beautiful. It is powerful. It is transformative in our lives. But the guardians of the Christian tradition through the centuries have been people. And people are prone to error, even well-intentioned error. And reform is an essential process of health and well-being. And you and I are living through a time in history where history is demanding reform of us. And our interns are coming to us to take up the mission of building or rebuilding the church in the years to come. And they could use some permission from us on how to go through the rethinking process. So, all of those remarks, again, not even close to the point of the lesson today. I just wanted to read something from the King James Version of the Bible. (laughs) Because, for all of its dubious origins, it is the best translation that the West had for over 400 years. And so consequently, it was the translation we used. And the language of that translation became poetry. The language of that uh, translation became deeply embedded in our culture. And its language has come to sound poetic to us, beautiful, layered with tradition and belonging and meaning. It has become lyrical. And the modern translations of today's text are much more helpful in terms of understanding it, but they don't have some of the evocative feeling that comes with this ancient language. So this text is one of the more familiar chapters in the Bible. We sang it this morning. It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's often called the love chapter. If you've been to 10 Christian weddings, there's a good chance you heard this text read at five of them. (laughs) I'm going to read the whole chapter and... I want to read it in this lyrical language. So here goes. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, 
is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, I'm sorry, you probably didn't get that, did you? Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even, as I, even also as I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. Now, when Paul wrote those words, they didn't sound lyrical. He wrote in the language of the street. It was called Koine Greek is what it was called. His was more prose than it was poetry. His writing didn't evoke feelings of Shakespeare or cathedrals or stained glass. And so reading in that language is a little bit of a disconnect. Because what Paul is doing here is laying out the inner workings, the gears and the levers of how the spiritual journey works. When you awaken to the divine life, he is saying, when you step back from the limits of ego as self, when you realize that the Spirit of God is the deepest and truest and realest part of you, and when you develop the mechanics by which you tap into that interior source, you change. You don't remain the way that you were. Because the seeing and the touching and the drawing from, it changes you. Having seen having accessed, having tasted, you can't satisfy any longer a life lived in the lesser reality. You deeply desire the deeper life. Realizing that the divine life is in you, having experienced what it's like to touch that divine life, you're spoiled for anything else. The lesser life begins to be afforded less gravity, and the divine life afforded more. You keep getting pulled forward again and again and again toward the light that is in you, toward the life that is in you. And when that happens, this word happens to you. Charity. It happens to you. Now that's an old English word, charity. It's undergone a shift of meaning since King James translators wrote it down that way. It's come to mean generous deeds done towards someone else, someone needy. It's come to mean giving something to someone else. That's what charity has come to mean. But that's not what it meant when it was translated that way. If you've read the, this chapter in a modern translation, you would have noticed the word love instead of the word charity. I, if I speak the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am nothing. If I know all of life mysteries but have not love, I am nothing. However, the word love is to Christians as the word snow is to Eskimos. You've probably heard that the Inuits have 50 words, different words for snow, because living in the stuff, they begin to 
see all kinds of nuance about it, and they need words to talk about that nuance. Snow is more than frozen water for them. It's different manifestations of how water freezes, how it lays on the ground after it freezes. It's all kinds of different ways of talking about snow. And the same thing is true for people who are immersed in this concept of charity or this concept of love. It's got a vast nuance, and one word kind of won't do. So the passage begins to break down what charity is, how it works, what it means, how it unfolds. Charity is the capacity to tolerate the slings and arrows of broken souls. You've heard the expression, not to suffer fools. Jane is bright. She's brilliant. She does not suffer fools gladly. If you get in the way, I will not suffer your foolishness. But Paul defines charity kind of opposite to that. The very point of charity is that it does suffer fools. It looks beyond the broken parts of people to something that is deeper and truer than the brokenness. There's a deeper belief that there is something precious under the surface, the imago Dei it's been called, the image of God, the breath of God, the life of God that indwells each person. Charity suffers the hassle of wounded people because wounded people are a hassle. Holds to the belief that there is something more than the hassle. Charity acts on the goodness, the intrinsic breath of God, the value, the worth, the inimitable value and worth that dwells under the surface of false self-foolishness. And seeing this deeper reality, charity is kind. Seeing this reality, charity treats the person as they truly are, not according to their surface foolishness, not according to their surface hurts, not according to their surface wounds and the reactions to the wounds. Charity treats the person according to the reality of the divine life of which they are carriers. Charity isn't driven by the need of the false self. It isn't working for the good of that lesser version of me and my and mine. In fact, charity approaches life with an eye to the whole, the well-being of me and mine, and the well-being of you and yours. My kids' well-being and your kids. My paycheck and your paycheck. My recognition and affirmation and your recognition and affirmation. Charity isn't about zero sum. Zero sum says there's this much out there, and if I get mine, you are going to lose yours. Charity says no. In this interconnected whole of which we are all a part, it is about looking for the system's elevation, which includes me, but also includes you. It takes care of my needs, but also takes care of your needs. It promotes the things that I believe are important, but it also values and pays attention to the things you think are important. Charity is about discerning the well-being of the whole and promoting that. Charity then becomes compassion, and it becomes humility, and it becomes a service because once we understand the interconnectedness of the whole, we begin to work for the well-being of all. That's a depth of nuance that isn't often captured by that English word, love. And knowing that the divine indwells us, each of us, and that preciousness cannot be undone in us, When, in the process of suffering fools, we are attacked, charity is not easily moved. 
Charity is able, drawing from the interior source, to return evil with good. Charity is able to sidestep revenge fantasies that come so naturally in the night hours after we've been hurt. That gives charity a depth of resilience, and it gives charity a depth of strength, a capacity to see beyond the evil things and to see the bigger truth on the other side. Charity has the capacity to see the stupid things, but see beyond the stupid things to see the other side, to hope in and to work toward the deeper divine being manifest in our daily worlds. Charity is born of the divine within. Charity is born of the movement of the divine that we sense when we walk this spiritual journey and tap this spiritual life. We call charity a virtue, but it is something much deeper than that. Charity is the fruit that is born in us when the divine life is nurtured and when the divine life is tended. Charity is the fruit that is born when we tend to the inner life, when we give room and when we give nurture and when we give encouragement to the depths of who we are. When we respond to those nudges that come from the Holy Spirit at the depths of our souls, when we work the circle, when we cultivate the interior life, the fruit that is born is at the epicenter, charity. And this, one of our most revered texts, Paul tells us that when this growth happens, when this touching the interior life happens, when it happens... Charity happens. When the growing happens, when the divine life is touched, resilient goodness happens. Selfless compassion happens. Humility and service happen. Placid, unflappable peace happens. And so that's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer as we navigate through this time in our lives that our spirituality informs what our spirituality informs. That we become people of the divine, which means we become people of this vast word, charity. May it be so in us, Lord. Resilient goodness, may it be. Selfless compassion, may it be. Humility and service, placid, unflappable peace, may it be so manifest in our lives. May divine life happen in us, may charity happen in us, and may these flow through us to the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen.